Good morning, everybody. Did you guys uh, notice the new pastor? Um, yeah. Um, well, happy Resurrection Day. The tomb is empty, praise the Lord, right? Without the empty tomb, you have no risen Savior. Um, today's reading is in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 14. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent, uh, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God at any time if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Word, sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. These are the very words of God. Well, good morning to you. Um, if if Michael Good has not said he is risen to you this morning, he'll be over here after service, and you can come see him. All right? We are in. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 14, and, and a very timely um, portion of, of Scripture for our, for our resur- Resurrection Sunday, as the providence of God would have it. I know really early in the week, uh, Pastor John called me and said, dude, have you seen the passages that are in the schedule for this week? It's incredible. And Justin had emailed me earlier that day. Um, this is just a, a really wonderful section of Scripture to be considering the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And what we see in this is that the resurrection of Christ means that the Son of God, Jesus, died physically and then miraculously has risen or resurrected from the dead. And this is all we need. If that's true, this is all that we need. Everything else becomes very simple. And maybe maybe you're new to church, maybe you're new to this story, or maybe this has always sound ridiculous and you're thinking, right, Jesus came back to life. Um, so I love the, the fact of the scriptures is that what we have in the scriptures are eyewitness accounts at times. Sometimes they're foretelling what will happen. Not foretelling, but foretelling. God says what will come to be, and he is in charge of that. He doesn't guess at it. He's not like, um, he's not, you're not calling him now for your free reading if you stay up late enough on, on Thursday night. God says what will come to be, and then causes that. Thomas, perhaps you've heard of Doubting Thomas before. Maybe you've heard people call him that. Um, Thomas in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
and I'll hit pause. I want to be fair to Thomas here. If you're in this moment, if you're living this time, if you see Jesus be tortured, if you see Jesus be taken and and placed on a cross and and hoisted up into the air and know that He is surrounded by, by Roman guards and people mocking Him and spitting at Him, hung to die, and someone comes and tells you later and you didn't see it, hey, He's back. I think I also would say something very similar to Thomas. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. See, things about Jesus, as we, as we talked this morning um, in, in, the, in the Sunday school about uh, God being a, a trinity, God being triune, God being three, God being one, that the scriptures have always described him as one and that the Scriptures ascribe to Christ worship. God commands His angels to worship Him. Only God can be worshipped. And so the the concept of the Trinity is is full and and complete in the Scriptures. Jesus doesn't need to knock on the door to come in. He can just pass through. He has command over this life. And now in His resurrected state, His body is, is different. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but that, to me, would be very startling. We're all locked in the house. We're safe. There's all kinds of strange things going on in the world. Um, Jesus has hung on a cross and has died. And Thomas says, you know, unless I see this myself, guys, I'm just not taking your word for it, especially you, Pete. And then suddenly in the locked room appears Jesus, very much alive and well and suggesting peace be with you, I would be terrified. I'm terrified to walk from this corner of the building to that one when the lights are off. Much less Jesus, who I very much know, died to be standing in a room where we're locked up and safe. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting, and believe. And Thomas makes his confession to him. My Lord and my God. Now in this moment, if Jesus is not God, if Jesus doesn't claim to be God, if Jesus wants to make sure that Thomas is not a blasphemer, he has one duty and one duty only, and that is to completely correct him in this moment. Do not call me God, I am not. What do you see from every time an angel comes on earth, the people prostrate, they throw themselves before the angel, and the angels say, get up, I'm not God. Don't prostrate before me, don't offer me worship. But Thomas says directly to Jesus, who's just said, put your hand, Thomas, where the nails were, put your hand in my side. Thomas confesses, my Lord and My God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so the resurrection of Christ demonstrates that life, which has us completely captured. 
life. We're stuck in this life. There's nothing that we can do to, to do anything to control this life. We can't change the color of one hair on our head. We have an expiration date. We know that's true. We just don't know what it is. That's why everyone is always so surprised when someone passes. <gasps> I can't believe it. Really? It literally happens to everyone. And you can't believe it. Life which has us captured had absolutely no power over Christ. He gave up his spirit. He allowed this to occur. And with a purpose. And so this is why we celebrate with the scriptures in saying, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Resurrection Sunday. That's what we celebrate. There is no sting in death. Paul would talk about it quite a bit. To die is gain. So for our passage today from 1 John, we'll look at each verse alone and we'll see it supporting Thomas's confession that this Christ who rose is all we need. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved. John comes back to reminding the reader who he's addressing. This is to the beloved. This is not to people I'm generally friends with. This is not to the entire world. This is to the beloved, a specific group of people found in Christ. He calls them beloved in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, when he calls them to know that their confession in Christ makes them those who share in Christ's victory. He, he wants them to resist this notion, these people that have, have left the early church and they're, they're teaching uh, a, a Gnostic heresy and they're trying to pull those out of the church and say, there's more, there's more to know if you would just hear from me. Beloved, your confession in Christ makes you a victor. You don't need to take your faith in Christ you don't need to take what you learn in the Scriptures and add something else to be made whole. You're a victor in Christ. By the way, the Christ who lived perfectly in all ways like us, yet without sin, and who suffered through this abuse and this kangaroo court, who was crucified, who gave His Spirit up, and so He died, because the penalty of sin is death. There was no sin in Christ, so He gave up His Spirit. The grave could not hold Him. He resurrected and then he appeared in the house with Thomas, <laughs> who said, my Lord and my God, and remained uncorrected in that confession. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, we see that we should, as the beloved, have a specific kind of love among one another, an active and purposeful love, one that doesn't look upon one of, our, one of the brethren, one of the body, who, who has a need that we could very easily satisfy and say, I hope that works out for you. That's not a true love. And now, 
in chapter 3 and verse 7, we see that we in Christ have this once final, solidified, perfect connection to God because of Christ. And this makes us His children. And as His children, we bear traits of that family. You, you, can, you can look on us as children of God and see markers that we belong to Him. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46 we're going, to, we're going to go all over the place. So if you're in adult Sunday school this morning, your fingers are already sore, that's okay. You can jot these down. You don't have to keep up. Plus, most of them will, will come up behind me. But in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46, Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He's placing the, the, the nature of the love of God up and against the nature of the love of the world. They're different. They, look, they share a word. They share a, an idea. But they're not the same. Because God's very character and nature are not loving. They are love. They look like love, but they're the very source of love. If we want to know if something is love, we hold it up to God. We don't look at what God does and determine whether or not it was loving. We look at what we do and measure that up to God because he's the source of love. And so the way the tax collector loves you is because you give him some money. There's some benefit. There's some exchange that takes place. And that's a human kind of love. God's love doesn't exist as some kind of a reaction that is earned. In fact, that's what this passage is going to be about this morning. God loved us while we hated him. Not while we were casually disinterested in him, but we actively hated him. And maybe we wouldn't say it, but we did. It's, it's why if you're an unbeliever and you come into a church and there's songs that are being sung and lyrics that are being sung that are, that are focused on God, it's, just, it's annoying. I remember being in a church as a complete unbelieving person and thinking, why are these idiots just rotely mimicking these words? They don't even know what they mean. Why would I say these things? I don't believe this. What? I'm not a puppet. Why would I say these things? John 3, 19 reveals that people loved the darkness more than the light. With a passion, we love anything but God in our natural state. And so the love of God is not a measured reaction that is earned. God's very character and nature are love. It's where love comes from. And so then for us, when we become joined to God in Christ, we start to take on his characteristics. We don't hold them perfectly. Just ask Roy. But they're there, and they start to flow out of us. That's what the scripture is encouraging us to. It's not saying, hey, take this, take this work of loving people on and bear it like a weight, right? Like a yoke on your neck, like a, like a burden. Now you better go do some loving things. No, it's encouraging you that more and more as you become conformed into the image of Christ and you see the love flowing out of you, that's an encouragement. This is God in me. This doesn't come from me naturally. I don't care about these people around me. 
because they've earned it. I care about these people around me because the Spirit of God lives in me, and now I see his character flowing out of me. And that wells up in me a kind of an excitement that God allows me to be in his family. It assures me that I'm found in him. That's so much more exciting than saying, you should go out and do some loving things this week. You, you, you should keep God happy with you by serving people, by loving him and loving others. And that means you should participate in this ministry and that ministry. And before you know it, you've got plates spinning in so many places because you're kind of trying to either keep God happy with you or make people think God is happy with you. And so you're so busily trying to keep up that you're grinding yourself out and you're wearing down. And your excitement for God doesn't grow, your exhaustion grows because it's work. And that's why Jesus would look and say, my burden is light. It's not heavy. Don't put a yoke around people's necks and make them feel burdened. The love that we have for one another as the family of God is different than the love that members of the local community club, country club have for one another. Knowing God, and we talked about that a lot this morning, knowing God is not a one-time occurrence. I don't come to know God and say, oh, there he is, now I'm a believer. Wonderful, and then I move on with my life. I saw God and I said, oh, look, there's God. He created the heavens and the earth. I get that, right? He stretched out the, the universe. And so some planets are going towards us, some are going away from us. He exists outside of time. Got it, I know God now. I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and then I face over here and I do all the things that I just want to do. I remain completely unchanged. This is not knowing God. Knowing God isn't being aware of a God concept. Knowing Him is growing in knowledge of Him by abiding and experiencing Him in daily life. Knowing God is what John has been developing all throughout 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, we read, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. When God knows us and we know him, we don't walk in the dark, meaning a continual pattern of sinful living. It doesn't mean if I, if I sin, if I stumble, if I trip, if I do something that I think isn't pleasing to God, it doesn't mean I'm an unbeliever and now I need to become saved again. But it does mean that there's something in me that isn't satisfied to just go after sinful ways, to go after sinful ways of living. And it's important to know what sin is as well. Uh, sin is not that um, I, I said a potty word, or I watched a movie, perhaps, that I shouldn't have, or um, I, I laughed at a line from The Hangovers, parts one and two. Sin is that I'm an affront to the very character and nature of God. God's character, what describes God, is love. And so I act not in love, I'm in opposition to Him. That's an offense and an affront to him. He is a perfectly loving character. And when I act not in love, I am out of line with what he is. And so when God knows us and we know him, we don't continually have a pattern of walking in sin. If we tend towards a path that doesn't lean towards him, lead towards him, and we're fellowshipping with him, we start to go, wait a minute. 
this doesn't feel quite right. I don't feel like I belong here. I don't think this is right. And so the Holy Spirit that lives within us, ministry is to remind us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we'll feel that and we'll be drawn back towards God. As we fellowship and as we stay in His Word, we'll read of things that tell us what is sin. It's so interesting that even a, a transformed heart, when we become a believer, if we don't stay close to God, if we, they used to call it abiding, if we don't abide in Christ, if we're not spending time in prayer, if we're not reading from the Word, we tend to drift away from God. Um, it's like driving. If you start to look at the opposite side of the road, you tend to kind of go that way, right? And so the Christian life is similar. If you're not focusing on God, you don't tend towards Him. You tend in other directions. You tend to be satisfied thing, by things that are not of God. And so we need to be drawn back in. Because we know Him and we don't want to walk in darkness. And so then through the Scripture, we can see what it is to be either in the light or in the dark. It's great because we don't even have to guess about what might be sin and what might not be sin. And you hear people talk about it. Well, I don't think that this is sinful. Interesting, because the Scriptures may say that it is or isn't sinful. And so you really don't even have to pontificate on it too much. The Scripture doesn't leave us without a remedy for knowing what sin is. It's just that some people prefer to do feats with the Word of God that a Cirque du Soleil contortionist would be impressed by. Acts 13.10. This is Paul, by the way, um, on this magician, Bar-Jesus, who's trying to keep the proconsul from hearing the gospel. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Well, that wasn't nice. Sure, well, yeah, absolutely, it was loving. You, you, you've got this magician who's there, and he's, he's got the attention of the pro-council. This is like a very influential person who I think later you would read would go on to be very influential over several provinces, who is wants to hear about anything, right? And there's so many ideas that are going on in the world here. These people are converging and coming together in this place. There's all kinds of interesting thought. In fact, you would see Paul say, you know, he commended them. Like, you know, you want to you hear about all kinds of new things. And you even, you, you so carefully, you so intently want to know about God that you even have this one to the unknown one, just in case you missed one, which is great because that's what I'm here to tell you about today. The real one that you don't know. And so Paul, with a passion that sometimes got him into a, a skosh, a smidge, a wee bit of trouble, tells this magician, Bar-Jesus, to back down. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Perhaps we would do well to believe that passage. Perhaps we would do well to say, where are the areas? And I like to ask questions like that. Not 
are there areas? But where are the areas in my life where I'm loving something of the world more than God? Because I want that gone. Comfortably, of course, but gone indeed. Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that's either true or not true. You have to decide for yourself whether you will do acrobatics with the word of God or whether you will accept it. Now there are people that look at the scriptures and say, I just take whatever it says at face value. And uh, that's why some churches have a snake box up front, right? And they let themselves get bitten to see if they die or not. So I'm not saying turn off the mind, turn off the faculties and don't think. In fact, the scriptures themselves say to test all things. Paul celebrated those people in Berea and said they take what he says, they compare it to the word to see if it is so. If we believe that we live in a world system that is somehow energized by the enemy, the father of lies, who introduced sin into the world when he came to Eve and he came to Adam and said, well, did God really say that? What did he attack? The very words of God. He attacked the very motive of God. He said, God is just trying to withhold something from you. He's trying to withhold some knowledge of good and evil. And I don't know about you guys, but I would rather not have that knowledge anymore. I would be happy for that to be cut off from me. And I look forward to that day and I look to the resurrection of Christ and know he has command over life and death. And he says, I'm more than victor in him. And so I look forward to that day when I no longer know sin. Those who know him have fellowship, not walking in the dark, but in the light, practicing truth. That's the evidence that we have fellowship with God. We're redeemed to God by the very blood of Christ. This has been John's point. When we're redeemed, when we're brought whole, when we're made whole, we're brought near, when we're justified, meaning we're made just as if I'd never sinned in Christ, it changes us. Materially, we're different. We don't walk under the guilt of sin any longer. We're not a slave. We're not a victim to our sinful desires and our sinful nature. We have the Spirit of God that keeps reminding us, hey, you're of the flesh, but think about this. First John 3, 1 and 10 demonstrate that we're no longer children of the devil, but of our heavenly family in Christ, God's own family. And then that we bear the family resemblances. You know what I mean? You've, you've seen people before and you, know, you realize that they're, they're related and you're like, oh, that makes sense because you say this word with that accent, right? Maybe, maybe you, you say, oh, this person speaks strangely and then you hear the rest of the family and they all say the word that way. Just these subtle marks of the family. Little jokes maybe that your family tells that other people have no idea what you're saying. Or even if they do, they don't think it's funny. And you guys think it's hilarious. It's marks of the family. And so the love that flows from us isn't a duty or a job that we take on grudgingly. It's one we're excited to see flow out of us because it's a mark of the family. 1 John 3, 1. 
See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Or 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, let, me, let me ask you, like, really interact with that text. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. Feels good. And who are the children of the devil? Feels bad. Who talks like that? Whether or not they're a child of the devil. Scripture, for one. It's very binary. It is one or the other, and the gap is closed by Christ. Either I'm found in Christ, my life is different, I see the world differently according to Christ as Lord, or I'm not, and I'm of the devil. I am deceived. I am going after anything but the Scriptures, or I'm like the Cirque du Soleil contortionist. I change what the Scripture says to fit the way I feel or what I want it to say. Even when it plainly says something else, I say, did God really say that that's true? In verse 7, John says to the beloved that we're, we love one another because love is from God. And the very state of love comes from a connection to God and Christ. And John built a very strong base of what it means to be found connected to God and Christ. By Christ's blood, walking in the light, fellowshipping in the truth, and reflecting the very love of God. Well, how do I know those things are true? Maybe I'm making them up. Let's look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Not loving, love not flowing out from you among the brethren equates to not knowing God. If you don't have any kind of reaction whatsoever to a brother or sister in Christ in need, you should really question that. Now, some people perhaps would teach something called universalism, meaning everyone is just a believer. The concept of salvation would be rather foreign to this person because everyone is just kind of okay. Uh, God made me this way, and so however I am is how God accepts me, and he's loving and so then you have to ask, well, why in the world did Jesus live perfectly, get battered by his own creation, hang on a cross so that his blood could be spilled for the remediation of sin so that you could be made right to God, if he's just kind of generally okay? That seems silly. So here's two questions, if universalism is true. What did Jesus mean by Matthew by his statements recorded by Matthew in Matthew 7.23. If universalism is true, why do we find Jesus saying, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What was Jesus talking about? Depart from me, you're a worker of lawlessness. You are actively walking in the dark. Therefore, I don't know you. You don't know me, and you should be away from me. 
And why has John spent so much time describing in the beloveds what it means to be found in truth, walking in the light, distinct from those who aren't like this? I find that many who claim for a universal salvation do not fellowship in any kind of church whatsoever. They don't like the church, perhaps, because it disagrees with something that they likely do scripto-acrobatics with. The kinds of things that John has been talking about this whole time, that he's encouraging the church, hey, those people that left you were never of you, and don't be drawn into that. You can be sure that the love of God is in you as you see love flow out from you, as you see that you walk in the light, not in the dark. We should appeal to Scripture rather than to preferences and worldly teachers. That's the only way, truly, that we can be saved. That's how I know if I'm in in the light. That's how I know I'm walking in the light. I really expect that I'm going to stand before God and say, well, Doug told me it was okay. And he says, well, you know, I mean, I did write this, this book comprised of 66 books that I worked, like, diligently, perfectly, actually, to reveal myself in accommodating language. Um... In my house, everything's spicy because I have kids. Right? Salt is spicy. Food that isn't chicken is spicy. And so I find myself having to describe things to people. Just the other day, in fact, I made some wonderful smoked um, chicken legs. And they had a little bit of uh, smoked paprika on them, which, of course, for the children made them too spicy right? because it wasn't boiled in water and water alone. And so you find yourself, after you make that mistake, having to describe to children everything you make because they don't trust you anymore, right? So they ask, well, what does that taste like? How do you answer that question? What does that taste like? You have to use accommodating language. Kids know a few things, and so you speak in that term to them. Well, it's kind of salty, and it's like a chicken nugget, so you're going to love it. And so when a God that exists outside of time, who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, whose very character and nature is love, and you don't even know what that means, speaks to you about truth. He does so in accommodating ways. He accommodates us by using human language and ideas to explain what sin is like, to allow us to understand it a little bit more. And so, in verse 9, is one of those accommodations so that we can understand love. How does God describe love to us? Here we go. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Cool. You can memorize that. But when, when this passage starts, in this, you say, okay. I'm about to be handed a package in this. Okay, so in this package that's about to come, what am I going to get? I'm going to see that the love of God was made manifest. Manifest, meaning clear or obvious to the eye or to the mind. So in this thing that I'm about to be told, the very love of God is going to be made clear so that I can understand it in my mind, what the love of God is, because I I don't have that. It doesn't naturally flow from me. In this, the love of God was made manifest. 
that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So by the, by the person of Christ having been sent into the world, my mind can understand the love of God. Why? Because Christ was sent while we hated him. There was no reciprocal benefit to loving us when Christ entered in the world. There, there were no believers in this moment. There were people who maybe for a moment would you know, appease to God by participating in some ritual sacrifice that was really just to show that without blood there was no remission of sin. And so it was to line up the story for the perfect spotless lamb, Jesus, who would come and satisfy everything that God had been demonstrating throughout all time. You're hopelessly lost. I'll provide a way and a means for you to be in communication with me, but it'll never be what it could be. And then when the Son of God comes and suffers for our sins, then we start to understand the love of God. A people who are so obtuse and resistant to God, and He comes and dies for them. And the Scriptures are where we should get our answer about God. Not from Trina at Starbucks or Edwin at Walmart or a coworker or someone who's on TV that says interesting things or someone who's on the radio. It should be from the Word of God. We really appeal to people to understand, well, I think that God is, well, I don't care what you think that God is. Someone else might think God is something else. So who wins? Is God everything to everyone? God just, he's like, a, you know, kind of just trying to keep up with everybody, like a puppet on a string. Whatever this person thinks I am, I'll be that to them. Whatever this person thinks I am, I'll be that to them. And really, I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a slave to these people that I've created. No, God is one thing. And that is what he has revealed. And he is perfect and he is holy. He is love and he is loving. He has a standard because it's measured against his character. It's not like he set some rules and said, these people need to keep up with this, and if they don't, I won't like them anymore. It's that this is what his character is. And when we're not this, we're out of line with who the very nature of who he is. And so we don't guess at how we're in or out of line with his character. We look at what he said. He accommodated us with 66 books. In Jeremiah 44, 4, to a people who sit in Egypt. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants and prophets, saying, oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. So even just really clear information, messengers who are sent directly and say, don't do this thing, and people just do them. Right? It's like the experiment that I want to do. If we had a smooth wall outside instead of rocks, like we would just paint that wall every week and put a sign that says, do not touch, and we put a camera on it. And invariably, all day long, people would walk up, and what would they do to our wall? You already know. They would touch it, and then look at their finger to see if they had been marked by it. We see that God must handle sin if he's fair and just. Job 15, 14 through 16. What is man that he could be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? Behold. God puts no trust in his holy ones. And the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt. Man who drinks injustice like water. That describes us so well. We drink injustice like water. 
like we need it to live, like it's refreshing. Later in Romans 10, 2 and 3, for I bear them witness as that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is the danger for defining for ourselves what God might be. We start to seek after our own purposes. As everyone is defining a God for themselves, guess what that God starts to look like? Everything they like. It's very interesting. Oh, this is a great God I serve. It likes everything I like. And it likes me. And it thinks that people that aren't like me are wrong. This is fantastic. Could you imagine living in a world like that? It's almost like building a house on a, on a, like a loose foundation. It's almost like a house divided could never stand on its own. It would just fall apart. It's almost like without a, a vision for the future, people falter and, and fall away and are confused and don't know where to go. Our nature in our natural state is opposed to God's own nature. We hate Him, we resist Him, and of ourselves we cannot please Him. And, and maybe that sounds mean, Right? Maybe that sounds mean that we can't please God. But I tell you what, if I could please God, that would mean he just wants me to be like a trick pony. He wants to ask me math questions and I stomp out the answers. Even once converted, even once we become a believer, even once we're rejoined to God, we still need the Spirit of God to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This entire ministry in the life of the believer. This is a hopeless picture of people. We're not looking very good right now. So by the grace of God, He gave this temporary system for atonement. Because as a holy God... He can't look on a people. He can't fellowship and be and spend time and, and be connected with a people who hate him, who, and by hating him, they act out against his very character and nature, and his very character and nature are love. The fruit of his spirit being in us would be patience and kindness and self-control and all these things that we aren't. And so it's not like he's going to come and walk in the cool of the garden with us when we're in this state where we can't even conduct ourselves according to his nature. We can't be loving, we can't be patient, we can't be peaceful. And if you think you can be those things, I submit to you this, drive in traffic. You will find out very quickly what your character and nature is. The very first person that drives in front of you, you'll feel this feeling in you. And that feeling that you're feeling isn't love, patience, peace, kindness, self-control, goodness. There's no law against those things, and that's not what you're feeling in that moment. So, all the way back in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, we read this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is, God is, from the very beginning, 
setting up the future reality that will come to be in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11, looking back, would say, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Romans 3, 23 through 26, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We'll come back to that word. By His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Both just and justifier. This is what John is pulling at. This is what he's going to get into with this concept of propitiation that we're going to come back to. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the service of God to make a propitiation, that word again, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. In Romans, propitiation. In Hebrews, propitiation. Now in John, is the action of appeasing God or spirit. Now they're drawing on this concept that was idol worship. I have to make my propitiation. I remember one time um, being at a, a Walmart supercenter. You know, the Walmart supercenter. You can go there, get a haircut, nails, do your banking, buy a car, birth your child. And at one of the, the nail salons, there was a, like a little altar and next to the altar was all this like fruit cut up and flies all around it. Propitiation. Trying to buy back favor. And so how is that? What, how is God both just and justifier for us through something like propitiation? Again, the scriptures use accommodating language. They're drawing on concepts that people understand, right? We can understand buying back favor. But the favor is bought back for us on our behalf. We don't even do it. It's Jesus who is our very propitiation. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what makes the resurrection so incredible. That Jesus came to live always like us, yet without sin, who gave up his blood, just like was called for in Leviticus. This is where the, the life is. This is how atonement was made. And so the once final sacrifice offered up on our behalf in Christ pleases God, brings us back to God, and we didn't even do it. In fact, it demonstrates the great love of God, his loving character, because it was done while we had no concern for God whatsoever. In fact, before I think all of us, were even born. Christ died to be our payment for our own personal sins. John is talking about the depth of the unique love of God for us. And that love flows through us. 
And that love encourages us. The love that we have for the brethren, the love that we have among one another, when we see it flow out, it's not a work that we must do to make God happy. Propitiation was bought on Christ. It's a work that flows out of us, and it encourages us because it's fruit of our salvation. When I love you all, it encourages me, because that's not of me. I don't care about you guys of myself. You can't do anything for me. I care about things that benefit me. And so when love flows out from me, love among the brethren, I get to be encouraged that that is fruit of the Spirit of God that lives in me, of the very Christ who died on my behalf. And the truth of God's love is made abundantly clear in the resurrection. He was an acceptable, perfect, complete sacrifice. So much so that God raised him back. Because the penalty of sin is death. And in Christ, there was no sin. And so his death was offered as a propitiation, an appeasement to God, a payment to God, satisfying all of the requirements of the Levitical system. It says, you can't even choose to not sin. I, I sin prophets. And I tell you, don't do this one really specific thing and you do it. Because as John 3.19 reveals, you love the darkness more than you love the light. I sent a guy once to give you guys a book of rules. And while he was up there on the mountain waiting, he comes down and what are you melting your gold and making a God? You, you people can't even not sin for a moment. That's the depth of the love of God. That if we're being really honest with ourselves, if we, if, as believers, if we're not cautious if we don't spend time abiding, if we don't spend time in prayer, if we don't spend time in the Word of God, if we don't spend time with one another, encouraging one another, all the more as the day draws near, we will drift away from God. And He loves us. That makes no sense whatsoever. And that's why John encourages them. This is, this is, the, this is how you see the great manifest love of God, is that He sent His Son Christ for you while you hated Him. And he suffered and died for you. And he made payment for you. And he brought you near to him. That's the great love of God is that he loves you. And some of us think we're very lovable. Others of us will tell us that we are not. <laughs> but God loves us first. That's why the love of God becomes abundantly clear. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Just like we can see the love of God in Christ, the world can see the love of God in us. That is how we carry the death of Christ in our bodies daily so that people in, in the world around us can see and be drawn to him. Because we share about God with the words that our mouth says, right? Because we are loving towards one another. Because we, we gather together corporately every week and worship and we're friends together and we check in with each other and we text one another and, and we engage with the people around us on, on, on FaceTube and SnapBot. God loved us like this. And so we're to love one another in that same way. Um, sometimes 
we can get in our own feelings and we can be slow to forgive and quick to anger. Um, sometimes we can kind of feed that among ourselves. Man, can you believe so-and-so said this? Can you believe that person did that? And so we try to get people on our team to get everybody else mad at them as well. That's walking in the darkness. That's not walking in the light. We, we, we should be desiring to sow peace. Even when people wrong us, right? That's the great love of God. He sent Christ as our propitiation. Christ washed people's feet who were about to go outside and sell them out. He, he knew it. It's like, this is the guy whose dogs I'm washing right now. He's about to go outside and, and get a little coin purse for telling people where I am. And it's not just telling people where I am. It's people that are going to not just imprison me. That would be nice compared to what was about to happen to Christ. Who are going to tie me, strap me to a, a, a large piece of wood, strap, me, strap my body down to something and, and drag across my back sharp pieces of stuff to rip flesh away from my ribs. That's the great love of God living out in this life. It doesn't sow discord. It doesn't get people on its team. It's quick to forgive. It's slow to anger. Verse 13, by this, we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son to be the Savior of the world. And that should richly encourage us. So as we go from here, this Resurrection Sunday, let us be about testifying that the Father sent His Son to save the world. We do that by personally walking in the light. We do that by testifying about Him with our lips. And so with the Scriptures... We celebrate saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas had all he needed. Jesus said to Thomas, put, put, your, put your finger in here, Tom. You see my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting. And in that moment, Thomas had all he needed and confessed with his mouth, my Lord and my God. That's all we need. The testimony. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you that you have allowed us to see who we are apart from you. And God, that you have called us to be near to you and that God, you have given us a way in Christ that you don't wink at sin, but you make us justified. And we thank you for that. And God, I pray for us that we then, who are justified, work to glorify you in our flesh, carrying out the death of Christ in our bodies, confessing with our mouths, telling people about the great work of your son, Jesus, who is our propitiation that was done for us while we still hated you before any of us in this room ever lived. God, we thank you for the wonderful, powerful testimony of your love. And God, we pray that we carry even a, 
even a small portion of it, that others would be drawn near to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You would stand and close out your soul. Thank you.